Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Nurses know how to solve shit. Renegades. See, we're not as, uh, we're not Wiley veterans like you, Keith. We're just going to hit record and see what happens. Hey, you know, there's <laughs> so, something to say for spontaneity and serendipity. Yeah. The spontaneity part is very much up our alley because it's like, let's just see what happens. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what we say. We're really sandbagging a little bit. We're excellent at this. Totally. We're <laughs> pros just like you, Keith. <laughs> okay, that's but awesome. Yeah, well, let's go. Because you All know right. what's so funny is that, like, we just saw you at the National Nurses Business Association meeting. We met you in person, and we've been working together for a little while. We were on your podcast, but I don't know about you, Karen. I ver- ver- I don't know very much about you except the fact that you've been a podcaster since the dawn of time, and, yeah. and you're a nurse. Dawn of time. So. And you're very tall. And you're tall. I am. I mean, I'm only, well, I'm, it's all relative, Karen. I'm only six foot. No. Yeah. Yeah. She's short then. Well, <laughs> it is relative. I'm short with everyone, but I seem even yeah. shorter with you. You seem to, oh, but you were wearing boots. You were wearing like cowboy boots, weren't you? Didn't you have like No, I was not. Boots? I don't own cowboy boots. Well, I, oh, see, that's just how I picture you. This, a tall, uh, a tall cowboy. cowboy. That's just, oh. Yeah, a Jewish, awesome. Jewish cowboy. That's a tall awesome. Jewish cowboy. That yeah. is exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's true though, Karen. How much uh, do you know about Keith? Well, let's let's ask him to enlighten us. I know. <laughs> what do you want to know? Who are you? How did you get here? What have you done? Just where are you okay. from? Where have you? Did you live in two? You live in. Santa Fe. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so how does yeah. a Jewish cowboy get from somewhere to Santa, Santa Fe, New Mexico? Well, I was born in the house my father built. Actually, it's not true. Let me see. That's part of the mythos, you know. Let's see. Gosh, born in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. I'm a double art school dropout. I eventually yes. became a nurse after a period of existential angst in my 20s but who doesn't have existential angst in their 20s <laughs> and i've been a nurse since 96 it's been 20 20 i don't know a what lot of years yeah. 20 <laughs> something years and gosh yeah i started one of the very first nursing blogs in 2005 and that blog is now 17 years old and my Two partners in crime at the time, and I launched RNFM Radio in 2012, and that was, I think, it was yeah. the second nursing podcast on the internet. And then I happened to also be one of the first board-certified nurse coaches out of the gate. And I always say, like, I've been at the right place at the right time. It doesn't mean I'm prescient or smart. It's just that I happen to be at the right place at the right time for those three things. That's Sorry. amazing, though. That's like um, the book Outliers. That's mm-hmm. one of the things he talks about, how like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, like it's not just like the month everybody was born, but it's also the neighborhood they were born in and the time they were born in that all these things kind of came together at once. Yeah. And my fiance is an astrologer, so she has much to say about that. <laughs> what does she say about you? In terms don't of you want to know? Uh huh, I do. <laughs> I mean, not nah, well, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about just for your professional? <laughs> oh well, gosh, I don't know. We'd have to have her on to talk about it. So, go back so, to go yeah. back to the existential crisis. Mm-hmm. One of the oh. one of the questions we like to ask in the beginning because mm-hmm. it kind of gives us this lovely arc because most people. I would say everybody that we invite on this podcast has had their passion about something, right? They're different. They're a renegade. And in order to get there, they saw something profound that makes them a renegade, makes them see things differently. So it's usually some version of the question, was there a time in your life, aha, maybe an event, a day, or a significant time period Mm -hmm. that made everything look different to you from one day to the next? Well, maybe not a single moment, like 
not one crystallizing moment, but I think part of the journey was, I, it took me a while to unpack it and figure it out, but I was mm-hmm. trying to figure out over the years, like, why did I, why did I drop out of art school twice? Like, what was that about? Like, why couldn't I follow through on that? And, that, was my, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. And one of one of the things I came to was that at that time, when was that? Gosh, it was like 1984. When you were like three years old, I think. Uh, both of you. Uh, we all graduated uh, in the same year from nursing school, though. Oh, dear. Well, you all are super young. Well, the thing is that at that time, I remember looking at a program in art therapy. And at that time, like 1984, art therapy was pretty kind of edgy and, you know, kind of on the fringes. And it, I just wasn't quite sure if it was right. But over the years, I realized that being in the helping professions was going to make more sense to me because art felt so solitary and self-indulgent. And I think it took me time to figure out why that was that I kind of pulled away from it. And I ended up having to, not having to, but I chose to buy a one-way ticket to London and I went and hitchhiked for a year and kind of figured, tried to figure things out. I was only 21 and eventually started caring for people like as a private duty caregiver. And then I worked with developmentally disabled people and it all started making sense. Like all that kind of caregiving type of type of activity made sense. And I had a a great aunt who was a well-known painter and she took me under her wing when she was in her late nineties and I was, you know, 18 or 19. And she was a formative figure and I ended up taking care of her a fair amount and she died at 112. So that actually was part of it too. Like caring for elders become, became a thing. So it was all those little pieces coming together over time. Yeah. Did that did that happen? So you said you hitchhiked in in England for a year and all over it, Europe, yeah, all over Europe. And so then, did that when you came back? Was that when you started caregiving? Was there something that you had figured out during that period? Um, or well, when I came back, one of the things I did within not too long a period of time was I became a massage therapist, mm. and then I became a yoga teacher. So I was moving in that direction. Like there was something was going on, but it took, it took some while to, a while to come together. And then becoming a nurse made a lot of sense when I got married and had a stepson and I wanted to, you know, have a career and set an example for him. So, you know, that was one of the moments as well. And I'll tell you another one that I had several aunts who were nurses. And one of my aunts had a partner who nowadays you would call a wife, but not at the time. And she was this, this big burly kind of battle ax of a nurse, you know, and they had both been nurses during world war II. And her name was Jan. And my aunt was Sylvia and Jan would tell all these kind of body stories, you know, about world war II and being a nurse. And she would always tell the story when I was a kid, being one of general George Patton's personal nurses. Mm. And she would tell the story of how, when he had hemorrhoids, she would make him soak his butt in his helmet on the battlefield. So I often will say when I'm speaking, when I tell that story that I owe my being a nurse to general George Patton's derriere. That's fantastic. That's what, a good story. What a slice I, of history. Karen's speechless. She's trying to picture George Patton's derriere, but don't try. Or is no. It's not pretty. <laughs> no, I just think that's so cool. That's a, I was going to ask, what do you think made you different? Going back to the art thing. Yeah. You said that you thought that being, being an artist would be kind of a, I can't remember what you said. You said self-indulgent. Yeah, and solitary, very solitary. Self-indulgent and solitary. But I was going to ask, what do you think makes you different that you saw it that way and other people who go into art don't? And I think it's that several of your aunts were. Because when you see people in the helping profession, when you grow up around it, you kind of feel like a waste of skin if you're not doing something to help Hmm. people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't see them in action, but I heard stories and I guess it seeped into my consciousness, but I wasn't, 
I didn't live close enough to them to see them. Like I never even saw them in uniform. I just heard lots of stories about nursing, nursing and nurses and doctors. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was in the, in the family environment, people talking about it. But what, but back to our question, what made you, what made you think that, that art was self-indulgent and, and solitary versus someone else who might not think that way? Like what, what, what was that? Well, Maybe because other people were solitary and self indulgent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, it's and a I mirror. Guess, I would think I it was the influence. Pardon? I was, I was, I think it was the influence of all those stories that you grew up around. I think I mean, it was to some extent. I think part of it is also my, my, my personal makeup, and I think that just came to be. And I'm the only. You know, my, neither of my siblings is a helping professional per se, but they're all, they're both like service oriented and they, they're always helping other people. So we all kind of have that. Yeah. And I, so you've kind of pioneered a lot of different, I mean, besides being a nurse and in a helping profession, you've used that artistic part of your brain, that creative part of your brain, like was RNFM radio and mm-hmm. The way you do your podcasts and the way you kind of are just pathologically curious about people, like we we felt that doing a podcast with you, you know, you, you, you kind of curious, <laughs> like you pull those straight. Well, that's one of the that's one Podcasting of the things. Forensics here, folks. <laughs> we we uh, we put that in a lot of our marketing because I think the kind of people who are attracted to this kind of learning, well, we are pathologically curious. And we think we should be rewarded for that with continuing education for it, you know? But as I was saying, I think that really artistic right brain of yours has diversified nursing into so many different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that curiosity is really important to me and writing is really creative, even though some of the kind of more, contract writing I do is not as creative, you know, cause it's, you're writing for other companies and it's SEO friendly and all that sort of stuff. But when I can do my own thing and do my podcast, that's where I can have complete control and be as creative as I want. And I would like to find ways in the years to come to, to capitalize that on that even more, but that'll, that'll come over time. How often do you write? Like how often do you write for yourself creatively or versus for somebody as a contracted? These days, honestly, yeah. almost all my writing is writing for someone else. Cause I'm, oh, it is. I do it as an income stream. Yeah. I do write my blog that, mm-hmm. you know, nurses read. So that is totally me. And I don't think about SEO ever. I mean, I never think about SEO really for anything that I do. People always ask like, how do you get here and how do you get there? And I'm like, I just do whatever I do. I don't, people have always, there's always these, you know, you should do this and you should do that. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Mm, I'm going to do the opposite thing. So that's kind of how I've done my business. And maybe I've left money on the table and I could be much more successful and earn a whole lot more money than I earn now. But I don't play by all those rules that everyone has always said you have to play by because I like to just keep the right brain engaged. But when I write for these other companies as a freelancer, I play by their rules and I, I have to write, you know, super SEO friendly keyword rich kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it makes you, it makes you, you, it makes you our people for sure that you, you know, picked something up and said, I'm just going to do this the way that I want to do it. Right. That mm-hmm. was like Karen and I, and our first podcast, like, how does the microphone work? Okay. 10 minutes mm-hmm. before the podcast, let's just go with it. Mm-hmm. Right? But doing it the way that we wanted to do it. And it actually turned out really fun. Number one, really not the way you should do it. So it sounds like that's kind of how you've rent, run your whole your whole business aside from whatever you were doing, you know, at the bedside. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate when people should all over me. Do you know what I mean? So those shoulds are, are awful. And when I was first launching my business over the first few years, you know, people would be like, and, and, or you check out these, you know, boot camps for entrepreneurs and all this kind of stuff. And all the people out there, Amy Porterfield and all those who are like teaching 
these, that early entrepreneurship stuff, you know, like 10 years ago. And they're all like, oh, you should do these squeeze pages and have these, you know, the things, you know, you squeeze people down till you get to an offer. And I was like, how disgusting is that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that feels like like sandpaper on my nervous system. It's horrible. I'm always like, I've I've always been, you know, I'm going to put out the stuff I put out and be really authentic and clear and clean. And the people who want to work with me will find me. And the ones who aren't drawn to my stuff, that's fine. They'll move on somewhere else. And that's how I've always looked at it. Okay. So I love that. I want to know that Mm -hmm. is perfect to segue into. I want to talk about your nurse coaching because you were like one of the originals, like, you know, one of the original Aboriginal nurse coaches. Yeah. I don't know exactly what I want to ask here. I, I guess it's like, did you think of that role or did people start coming to you and you're like, huh, this could be a thing. And then you found, oh, this could be like, that's what happened to Andre and I with patient mm-hmm. advocacy. It's like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, you know, we saw the difference between people who either were or had a healthcare professional in their family when they were sick, you know, in the hospital, different lengths of hospital stay, lower morbidity, mortality, you know, medical airway down because they had someone to go, Hey, that's not the standard of care. Or I want a second opinion or wash your poopy fingers or Mm -hmm. before you touch my mother or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and it's like, wait, this isn't fair. Everybody should have a nurse in the family. If they don't, mm-hmm. that has to be a job. So hmm. in nurse coaching, because of who you are and your unapologetic way of being yourself and not doing it how everybody says you should, mm-hmm. I could see how that would be a magnet for other people who want to be that way too. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. question. Yeah. Well, let me see. Back around 2008 or so, my then wife was she's all she was always checking out and still is always checking out stuff right whatever's new and good out in the world right and she came across this thing called coaching so she was like hey take a look at this so we started we did like some weekend courses and we were watching those early early webinars and all the sorts of stuff and it was like oh coaching so i learned some skills from some of these workshops and things and then i started offering some free coaching just to pretty much anyone I knew. And then I realized that, oh, like who would my people be if I was going to work with people? And I was like, oh, nurses would make a lot of sense. So I put it out there and I started working with a few nurses for free. And then over time I realized, oh, I could actually charge money for this. So I decided, well, there's no license needed. I don't need a certification of any kind. And but I had some training and I thought, oh, I'm just going to try it. So I did like a really soft launch and started charging people like, I don't know, $50 or something. And then it slowly became like, oh, wow, people started coming to me. And one of the reasons nurses came to me was because of my blog, which had been going since 2005. So I'd already been out there in the world and I'd been writing for other websites too. And then when the board certified nurse coach thing came along, cause it got created not that many years ago, I'd already had like, I don't know, 500 hours of coaching that I documented. So I worked with the international nurse coach association and wisdom of the whole coaching with Linda Bark and Barbie Dossie at Inca to get grandfathered in. So those of us nurses who were ready coaching, we could get grandfathered in. We started to take the exam and I had to work with them for a certain period of time. But that's how a bunch of us got in, in the first like 50 to a hundred people who had already been coaching. What, what does that business look like today for you? How does that, you know, if I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse, I am a nurse and I want some coaching from you. Yeah. I go like, what is it that I would, what is it that you focus on? How, what, what does that look like between you and a client? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, it's career coaching, but I call Mm -hmm. it holistic career coaching and not just to throw the word holistic around because when people come to me, I can do like a resume. I can help them with cover letters and job search and their LinkedIn profile and prepping for an interview, you know, or writing an essay to apply to CRNA school. Like I can do all those things, but I, when I onboard a new client, 
I like to know a lot of things. I like to know who their pets are, who their children and spouses are, what they do for fun, the movies they love, the books they like to read, what they want their lives to look like, you know? So mm-hmm. I like to do a deep dive with my clients if they're willing. Oh my gosh. So that I'm going to hire can... you just so I can talk about myself. <laughs> oh, cool. Let's do it. So <laughs> I, my coaching, I can do the nuts and bolts and I'm happy to do them, the LinkedIn and the resume and everything. Mm-hmm. But anybody can do that really, if you think about it. I just feel like when I can understand the person on a deeper level, I can really help them form form a real vision of what they want their life to look like and include their spouse and anyone else in the conversation in a way. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a lot what that looks like. And sometimes it's about business, but more often it's about, you know, nursing career changes and, and the dynamics of a career. And some people come to me after they've say they made a mistake and have an encumbered license and they need to bounce back or they've been fired and we need to work with their self-esteem. Like we need to work with confidence. So it's not just about the resume. Do you, have you seen a shift in, in the kind of client you get based on kind of the culture of nursing now versus when you started doing this as a sort of, you know, trial, because it seems like there's so many pressing problems and it seems like nurses are more burnt out and stressed out than ever before. Do you notice that, sh- that difference or is, is there one? Not really. I mean, when I first started coaching, I was, I was focused more on health, wellness, burnout prevention, and all those sorts of things. And people wanted more of the straight ahead career coaching, but the burnout and compassion fatigue were always there. Mm -hmm. I think it's exacerbated by the pandemic and just everything that's happened, even in the last five years, just how healthcare has kind of, you know, gone down the toilet in so many ways. And nurses have been treated like so much cannon fodder for so long. So yes, there's some differences, but I think there's more of a, yeah, but there's more of an existential crisis. Like right now, like Mm -hmm. the zeitgeist is that much more intense right now, Mm -hmm. but the same themes come up over and over again, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, you can almost imagine you saying, oh yeah, it's so much worse. It's just terrible. But those themes of burnout and stress have been going on forever in nursing. Yeah. I mean, when I was working with Florence Nightingale, I mean, she was like, man, I'm so burnt out. (laughs) These gas lanterns lanterns are killing me. (laughs) I could actually see though, why your clientele wouldn't change because you are, I mean, if you kind of you attract what you are and you don't change who you are. You never have. I mean, maybe you have evolved and your clientele has evolved with you, but you don't change for anyone. So I can kind of see how you're attracting the same. And I'm curious about how you knew to do that holistic stuff, like the interest in the dog and the spouse and the hobbies and the the background and, you know, all the, the toothpaste you can't, put back in the tube that makes somebody who they are. How does that, how, first of all, how did you know to do that as like your secret sauce and how does knowing that stuff help you direct them? Uh Gosh, some of that came from books about coaching. I was reading some of it came from having been a yoga teacher and a massage therapist and having had deep conversations with people in my work. And some of it came from just just the way I am. Like, I like to know a lot about people. I'm really curious about people. Pathologically. And <laughs> pathologically curious. That's right. And I think to some extent, let me see. Hmm. I think understanding someone on that deeper level, like I was saying a few minutes ago, helps me guide them because you know, you can write an awesome resume and the person can go out and look for jobs. But one, if they don't know how to talk about themselves in a way that's authentic and really kind of paints the right picture of themselves, that doesn't help them go out in the world with any level of confidence. And one of my taglines used to be, and still is once in a while now, is, you know, you can let your career happen to you or you can make it happen. And that also has to do with your life. Like, you can kind of design your life or you can just kind of like 
let life run over you every day or every week or every year. So I like to help people create intentionality and I can't help them create intentionality if I don't understand what their life is like, you know, like if they have a disabled spouse or they have a disabled child and they've lived through a lot of trauma and whatever it happens to be, if they're a recovering alcoholic or if they lost several loved ones in the last couple of years or whatever it happens to be, or if they're a widow or a widower, those are important pieces to understand about somebody. And often I listen very clearly to the words people use because their words belie a lot about them, their choice of words. Hmm. Can you say, say more yeah. about that? Is that yeah. what you're going to say? After? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like if a person uses words like, oh, I have to, I have to do this, or I have to do that. Or they use words, they always say, I think, and they never say, I feel. Uh. And that tells me, oh, okay, this person's pretty left-brained. Or if they're always talking about how they feel and you know they don't, they don't go to the left brain much, then I have to decide on the language and approach I'm going to use with them to be able to reach them. It's like, if you're a nurse and you want to bring something to management or administration, you have to understand, are those more left brain folks? And if you're going to go to the CFO, that person's definitely going to be left brain and numbers oriented. So you have to go to that person with data. You don't go with them with like mushy, like, Oh, I want patients to feel better. You know, they're not going to connect with that. Mm -hmm. So same when you work with people, you even working with patients at the bedside. I mean, you know how in nursing school, I hope a lot of us learned about different styles of learning. Like some patients like pictures, some people need a demonstration and a return demonstration because they're kinesthetic. You know, I have to learn that about my clients too. It, you know, that was such a, a huge thing for me when I was charge nurse in the operating room because I would get on the phone with these surgeons and they were so left brain and they were so like, they just wanted the information. But I'm more of that feely, touchy person. So I give them this mm -hmm. long explanation and then inevitably they'd get pissed off at me because it was like, oh my gosh, you're wasting my time. And I just really want to know the answer. So can you just tell me click? Mm -hmm. And that was a really like, that was a good example of me finally seeing like, oh, this person doesn't care about like the whys or the more, you know, mm. patient centered pieces of this. They just want to know when are they going to be on the schedule? What time? When can they be there? Right? Like, mm -hmm. and it does have a huge impact on care. Yeah. And you can't expect people to speak your language and think the way you think. Because if you do, that you're not going to connect with people very well or very often. Yeah. So, you know, whether you're a coach or a nurse or physical therapist or a lawyer, whatever you are, I mean, you have to do your best to be successful. I mean, you have to meet people where they are. Yeah. And if you go to right brain person with a lot of left brain stuff, their eyes are going to glaze over. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> that happens to me all the time on calls when we have when we have meetings and they start talking about like the web app and the text shit. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Oh my. You should see, you should see her face. It's just like, <laughs> actually it, it, it's my face is like that for like 60 seconds. And then I'm like in the background, like rearranging my crystals. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's this was like, it's like ding, 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 ding. Like that is so worth this entire podcast, just reminding and reviewing those communication skills about mm -hmm. left brain, right brain thinkers and feelers and, and kinesthetic. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I have you rearranged question. your crystals. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a question, like as an example, can you tell me like, and I'm just drawing from my own experiences in our nurse, right? We get literally maybe five if we're lucky 10 minutes with the patient, right? Mm -hmm. So to go in there and establish that rapport with your patient and finding out, like listening to you, what's one thing I could ask them that would mm -hmm. kind of help me establish where they are on that spectrum so that I could speak to them in a way that they would hear, right? Because oftentimes you go in there, if you get, like if you're taking care of a doctor who's having surgery, right? It, it never even occurred to me until we we're having this conversation, Keith, that maybe 
just maybe he's more left brain. What could I say to him that would help connect us? That would, you know, make the, the nurse patient relationship therapeutic and helpful mm -hmm. as he's going off to surgery, you know, or the opposite, somebody who's more right brained. Well, one with this, with the physician or surgeon, whether it's a, a woman or man, whatever is one, you have to listen to the language they use. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And do they use words like think or feel? Okay. You know, are yeah, they you using, that? Yeah. are they using kind of like, quote unquote, like softer language, you know, mm -hmm. like kind of mushy, touchy, feely language. And there are physicians who I've met and even surgeons yeah. who use that language and they're actually quite right brained because surgeons can be super creative. Totally. Right. I mean, if you're going to cut somebody up, you got to have a little creative spark in you somewhere. Right. But <laughs> if you're talking to a nephrologist, maybe, you know, that person might be really numbers oriented. Like they want to know the anion gap and they want to know all this stuff. Right. And you gotta, you gotta be prepared with your information. And same with a patient, you can't, necessarily the way you elicit information from a patient, I think is you just ask open-ended questions and you, you listen to their language and watch their body language. And when you ask certain types of questions, they might go, they might fall flat. Like if you ask them a super kind of touchy feely question, and this person is pretty tightly wound type A, very left brain accountant, for instance, you might not get much out of him, mm -hmm. right? And vice yeah. versa with someone yeah. who's super right brained. So you have to ask open-ended questions. And, you know, instead of saying, how are you feeling today? You could say, you could ask Mr. Jim, What's going on for you today? Or how are you today? Rather than how are you feeling? Because maybe Mr. Jones isn't in touch with his feelings, oh, right? See, you give him a little space. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. Maybe. say, I mean, you know. where are you on your health journey? See if they go, Ooh. and then right. versus what would you like your health outcome to be? Mm -hmm. <laughs> journey. Yeah. Journey makes like a certain go. person might, well, yeah, I, I've never liked them. I wouldn't <laughs> listen to them today. No, but if I, if I ask, that question, a certain person, right, might be like health journey. What the hell are you talking about? Right. <laughs> it all depends what, where they're coming from. And you have to just, that's what assessment's all about. Right. I, but I really love this because process. Karen and I, in our, in our patient advocacy course that we took before we became patient adv advocates, there was a big section on motivational interviewing and therapeutic communication, but mm -hmm. I never have heard it that way. Like listen for their language and mm -hmm. how they speak. I think that's really, really interesting and seems like a piece of, of, of that process that sometimes goes unnoticed. Yeah. Right. Be grounded in yourself. Listen, like all of these things that, you know, are a part of, but I haven't ever heard it. Have you, Karen? Like listening for their language? I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I took some remedial NLP stuff, but never, never in such a multifaceted real world application as, in, as Keith's been talking about yeah. with working with clients, approaching administration, Mm -hmm. getting a feel for patient patients. I mean, family life. I mean, the, the checker girl at the grocery store. I mean, it was always, you know, this is a much more uh, multifaceted and real world application. And I think invaluable. You know? that, can, that can work anywhere. Like you just mentioned the checkout girl at the grocery store. Like yesterday I was at natural grocers downtown and there's this really nice cashier I've met many times. She's probably 23 or 24. And in yesterday, I just, she was ringing out my groceries and I just said, are you an artist? <laughs> and she was like, how did you know? And I was like, I just had this sense based on, and I told her what I was basing it on. And she like totally lit up and we had this amazing conversation, you know, <laughs> while she was doing my groceries, you know, and, and that was because I, I kind of watched her and observed and I was like, huh. And I was looking for some place I could go with her that would be beyond the usual transactional conversation, you know? Yeah. yeah. Are you yeah. left-handed? No, oh. I'm right-handed. Why do you ask? I don't know. Just, you have that. 
<laughs> yeah. that sinister quality? No. Well, I mean, I know there's a there's a more more people with left who are left a disproportional amount of people who have, are left handed who are surgeons and serial killers. Oh gosh, we well, you know where that sinister thing comes from. <laughs> you know, left was always seen as sinister. And, um, I don't know why. I, I, I like think, people who are left-handed. Is left it handed. Italian? Like the sinestre? I think one of those words from one of the Romance languages has to do with, you know, something sinister. I but know. I know I know wonderful left-hand people. You I don't do have so. you don't have a sinister energy about you at all. Your energy you. is very grounded and peaceful butter. and <laughs> yeah, butter. <laughs> totally. It's yeah. funny too how you can pick it out sometimes with people. Even even when I met you at that conference, I was like, oh, he really is kind of this grounded, calm, like, I like it. Can I mention something about conferences? Yeah. You know, it's what something I've written about and talked about when talking about like people's online personas, you know, Mm -hmm. how online personas can feel very curated. And one of the litmus tests for me is when I meet someone in person at a conference and I've known them online for a while, mm-hmm. it's like, is there any cognitive dissonance between their online persona and their in-person persona? And I've always strived for the, for my online persona to be exactly the way I would present in person. And you two are exactly in person the way you are. Through <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't go overboard with the orange hair. <laughs> No, the orange hair is awesome. It was great. No, but you two have that very, you know, there's all this, there's this resonance between your online personas and your in-person personas. There's like no difference. Oh, that's cool. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, I like that. And that's part of approaching people too, right? Like you have to think about your own presentation. Yeah, when we when we went to the conference the second day and we didn't have the wigs on and we were handing out those cards, everybody was like, oh "Who are my you? Gosh, who are you? The, are, were you the girl with the?" So I don't know. There was a little bit of talk about dissonance there. Like, where'd they go? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My I, fiance I, was looking at pictures and she was like, "Who are the who are the ladies with the wigs?" <laughs> She's like, "I should do their charts." That was the picture of both of us kissing Damien. That's That's the best. That's great. He looks so bewildered. (laughs) Like, what did I just get here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, but I think that comes from, uh, well, this uh, this is the drinking from a fire hose part, or I also say it's like one plugged into the back of my head and I'm trying to get out too many thoughts at once, but they're all the same. Mm -hmm. It's something about having the courage to be disliked Mm -hmm. and always showing up totally as yourself, not only out of love for yourself, and not to be an overly woo-woo right brain thing, but being true to yourself first so that you can be true to other people. Because I think so many people get wrapped up in presenting a certain image so that they will be liked, so that they will be respected or attract clients, or they don't want the surgeon to yell at them or, you know, whatever. That, that it's so disingenuous, it's scary to not be liked sometimes, but when you have that courage, then you're always showing up with yourself as yourself. Uh You don't have to remember any lies. You don't have to remember any persona that you or masks you put on and, and, you know, come off and forget it. And and then you come off as disingenuous and people smell that off of you. So Uh I think both Antra and I, and I, maybe you were born with it. (laughs) I don't know, but it's, I'm just too exhausted with, with pretending anymore. I, my, my big, my big aha came when I was 37 and I saw how sick it was making me trying so hard to get people to like me. You like just, last year. Yeah. I know. It was over a decade ago, um, but that has been, that courage has been cultivated. And I think that's kind of such a big part of what we do, you know, mm-hmm. everything we do. And I, I get that off of you too, you know, thank you. Yeah. And when you meet those people where their persona is like, you're like, really? You know, when you can't, you can't get a read on them or you get, you know, uh, well, you know how the online world is too, you know, like, like Damien Jenkins, right? Like you, Damien's persona online and in person is exactly the same. Or Renee Thompson or Donna Cardillo. I mean, they're all like, they all show up the same way. And that, that's, 
really wonderful and and that you can carry that being yourself into so many parts of your life. I too, I wonder too, though, just from some of the podcasts we've had with younger people, mm-hmm. how that's just something that's cultivated too over time, because, you know, where we can get to sort of the meat of a conversation and, you know, ask you what was, you know, one thing or a, a series of things that made your life look different. You have some experience to draw from. And, and so, you know, maybe it's the age thing, I don't know, but with some of the younger ones, I've found them to be a little bit harder to kind of tap into that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I don't know if that's an experience thing or. Well, it's experience. It's also generational. And Mm -hmm. this, this is not to knock on the younger generations. I I talk about them and I love them. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, millennials and Gen Zers. I think it's, it's more, it's also where you, how you grew up, like Gen, Gen Zers, especially you know, the, the youngest generation in the workforce, they're, most of them are digital natives. And if I don't know what that means, it means people who were born into a digitized world where, you know, smartphones and laptops and tablets, they kind of had them in their hand from like toddlerhood or earlier, right? They're digital natives. Whereas like, I'm not like the first computers were really available to me, like, when I, gosh, when I first got to nursing school in, in the mid nineties, mm-hmm, right. Yeah, so yeah. I had to learn that, that language and mm-hmm. how to be in the world in that way. But if you're a digital native and you've always had an Instagram account and you've all, you know, it's a different world. It so is. we have to cut people slack and realize they're coming from a different place. And how, and in a, in a motivational sort of therapeutic kind of conversation, what does that look like with a Gen Z or then if you were to coach a nurse, a young nurse that came to you? Hmm. Well, what's interesting is among a lot of, especially older millennials, but even not such older, like the oldest millennials are now like 40, right? So the, a lot of the millennials I meet, they're like, I don't do social media. I'm like, I don't even use email, you know, <laughs> where the gen, they, a lot of them have embraced technology Wait, can in you, a lot of ways. Can, and, did you cut out for a second there? Did oh, you get that, Hunter, or was that mine? I wasn't, I, I didn't get it either. Oh, that might have been me. Well, where did I leave off? You You're, said, millennials said they don't even some of them say, I don't even use email, whereas mm-hmm. the Gen Zers, and then it cut out just for about five seconds. Oh, and the Gen Zers being digital natives, you know, they approach it differently. And I, I haven't heard a Gen Zer who I've met yet say, oh, I don't, I don't use social media or I'm not online. Right. They might not use email because email is like not their favored form mm-hmm. of communication, but it's just, it's different. And Antra, the question you asked me was like how to draw them out, right? Well, yeah, it, it, a patient, a nurse coaching, is mm-hmm. it, you know, I know, listen to their language, mm-hmm. find something you can connect with, but is there a difference in sort of in drawing them out? The generational thing? Yeah. Yeah, you have to, you don't have to be super, super careful. It's just being, being aware of finding the places where you can intersect with them mm-hmm. because you're coming from a very culturally different place potentially yeah you grew up on different things you Mm -hmm. you lived through different political moments your view of work is different your work Mm -hmm. ethic is different so you have to really think carefully and just ask open-ended questions to get a sense of who they are like i was Mm -hmm. reading an article in the new york times this weekend about how gen zers see work differently and employers want to cater to that because Gen Zers are asking for different things, like a four-day work week instead of a five-day work week. This is not necessarily healthcare providers. This right. is out just in the world in general, and they want, you know, they want uh, to work remotely more often. You know, there's just there's different things that they want out of work, mm-hmm. and you know, those people are eventually going to be people actually in power making decisions, just like the millennials are now in more and more positions of power. So we have to think about the space in which people live, you know, their lived experience and try to meet them there. And sometimes as if you're older than them, you, sometimes you mess up and you feel like, oh yeah, that was really lame. Or, 
that totally missed. They totally that I, they did not connect with. I just what I just said at all. Oh, so starting out by calling them lazy and entitled, like I sometimes call my kids, is probably yeah. not the best. Probably not a good entree. Hmm. I, How does it feel to be lazy and entitled? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. I might ask my own kids that. No, I mean, I mean, we do have four generations in the workplace at any given time. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right now we have Gen Z, Generation X, um, the millennials. Well, the millennials, Gen X, and then the boomers the boomers right yeah. so that's like that's a span it's it a is a span. span so what are we are we yeah. we're gen x we're gen xers you and i, I are. was born in 64 so that's that either the end of the baby boom or the beginning of gen yeah. x and i you're a cusper i i'm a cusper and i identify with gen x because of the music the culture the politics the yeah just the general zeitgeist of the generation and you're a cowboy the generation you know jewish cowboy so so i identify with that generation you know it is a big span though you're right like that's so interesting i wonder if it's hard to be a manager in, in nursing with that kind of span you know i think some, it's hell <laughs> i was just gonna say like that alone would make it really hard can you and especially middle management right because they're they're you know they're over all these younger Gen Zs, millennials, maybe they're millennial themselves. And then they've got the Gen Xers and the, you know, boomers up on top of them. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like, yeah, and and the pitfalls of identifying, overly identifying with your generation. Uh-huh. I yeah. mean. That's true too, right? Yeah, yeah it's a thing. Can yeah, pit one group against another. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's like you yeah. need a board instead of a manager. <laughs> Poor. A board of generational board of directors instead of one manager. That's kind of an interesting idea. What about like several managers on a floor? I mean, it seems like we got enough of them (laughs) to go around. (laughs) Uh Well, we'll keep that in the hopper as an idea for our hospital. Yeah. Yeah. You just think about, you know, everything going on in these moments these days, like identity politics, like, you know, you talk to an 85 year old right now about identity politics and they're like, they just can't wrap their head around it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, we've always called them that, you know, but, but you're like, well, they don't want to be called that anymore. Well, but that's what I've always called them. You know, it's like yeah. every generation has the stuff they have to grapple with. And, you know, there are generations that, you know, they resented the, the telephone, right? Because it changed things. And then there are generations who resented the computer and the email and the smartphone. And you just, like, I watch my fiance's dad, he's 84. And I just watch like how older generations get left behind. Right. It's like people will say, Oh, download the app and you can check your chart. And he's like, what's an app? You know, it's like, (laughs) and we have to cater to everyone, but how do you cater to everyone? Whether it's in the marketplace or the workplace, how do you reach everybody? You know? Well, that's probably why we still have facts, Keith, because mm-hmm. the best way to get information to a doctor is through a fax in mm-hmm. 2022. <laughs> yeah, go figure. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's let's review all of your wheelhouses. <laughs> let's review here, because so do you do you do you nurse? Like, are you a nurse in a hospital on a floor? Like, do you do that as well? No. no, actually, I've been a nurse since 1996, and I've uh-huh. never worked a day in a hospital. So there's usually <laughs> ah, gasps of um, kudos of like horror when I say that. Why? Um, no, yeah, it, these cool. days the only nursing I do right now is I do COVID response stuff, like vaccination clinics and testing and all that sort of thing. That's what I've been doing the last couple years, and I haven't had like a job job as a nurse for. I don't know, six years, seven, maybe something like that. Okay. Then this is like, we should have started the friggin' podcast from here <laughs> because there's well, because I'm sure you coach a lot of nurses who have this, the way things ought to be, mm-hmm. you have to graduate and you have to go to a floor and you have to do this. And then you have to, you know, you ultimately want to be in management, but you, the way things the way the world says things ought to be is you have to cut your teeth and do this, whatever. Yeah. And that's not true. Because they shit all over you. 
because right. they should all yeah. over you. So, so yeah. tell us a little, can you, can you just go over the timeline? Like what did you do right after you graduated? Oh, I graduated in 96 with my ADN and I announced to everyone that I was taking a job in a federally qualified community health center in downtown Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is a very depressed old mill town with lots of drugs and violence and gangs and all that stuff. And everyone was like, that's career suicide. You know, you'll, you'll never be able to build a career. And, you know, my, my peers and my professors were all like, <gasps> you know, they were like, you've got to get two years of med surge. And I was like, hmm, not really. So I went to an FQHC for several years and then I went into home health did home health and hospice. And then I went over to another FQHC, but I was doing this very, very specialized cutting edge HIV AIDS care management. It was, it was, a, it was a profit HMO and it was very cutting edge type of care. And then gosh, I did that for a long time. And then I moved into, I did public health for a while. And then I was the CNO of a home health agency in Albuquerque. Once I moved out here from the West, from the East coast. How old were you when, um, you, when, when you were a CNO? Gosh. Well, okay. No, that, scratch that question. Uh, how I many around late forties? How many years 50, had you been a nurse? When I became a CNO? Uh-huh. Quite a few, like 18. Okay. 17, 12, 13. I don't know. Something like that. Less than 20. <laughs> less than 20. Yeah, yeah. Less than 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of the the clinical arc, you know. Yeah, it was you're, all you're outpatient, a, ambulatory. You're a poster child for doing it different. Like totally. you're, yeah. Well, yeah, like when when literally now, especially post COVID, mm -hmm. you know, we hear all of this stuff constantly about how you know nurses don't want to even work in a hospital. They don't want to go from nursing school to the med surge floor like you're supposed to do. But what else could I do? Like they're I that's just what you should do. But you're a, you're a yeah. walking, like that is so cool that you've had a career as long as you have and immediately knew, Nope, I'm not doing it that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and I tell people you can do that too. And mm -hmm. there are certain liabilities involved in not getting med surge or hospital experience. And you have to be clear eyed about the fact that there's some things you're not going to know or experience and you have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And either you play catch up if you find a job that will hire you without that experience, or you, you, you're, you be just become okay with not having had it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the thing is though, we need employers to catch up with the fact that there are nurses out there who don't want to, or don't have acute care experience. They have to, they just have to get over it. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping over the next over the coming years that employers will be like, forget the one to two years of med surge experience. We'll teach you. Yeah. I always Anybody go, can teach you that stuff. I always go back to, I, I graduated 96 as well. And I went right out to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Oh. Some manager, Richard Roach, he was a cowboy too. Hmm. Uh, he gave me a shot in a ICU. That's all I ever wanted to do was ICU or trauma. And I learned in three months everything I need. I was terrified. I went out for a beer with uh, two new nurses who were from Canada and they were speaking ICU. And I'm like, did you guys learn this in nursing school in Canada? I don't even know what you're saying. Like, I didn't even, it was like they were speaking a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, we, we learned this in orientation. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, three months, actually not even six weeks, I was competent enough. Mm -hmm. But None of that came from four years of nursing school. Uh -huh. I learned everything I needed to be a very competent ICU nurse. I mean, it was a good orientation. I had an, a fantastic preceptor and that's so that's important. Good. I mean, yeah, yeah, but that's what it takes. You can't do that as easily anymore with, with the resources that are, are available now because there's, you know, short staffed and, you know, it's like you're flying on your own and that's just, that is... Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm speaking too much. This isn't the me no, show, not. but I'm I'm kind this of. This is your podcast. I know, but it's about you. But I want to know what your take is because I think it's such a shame that nurses don't want to be in the hospital anymore. And there's a mass exodus. And how do we change it back to? I loved to go to work. 
Yeah. You know, how do we get back there? Well, one, as you talk to Dr. Renee Thompson, the Healthy Workforce Institute, Mm -hmm. little plug for Renee. And we- I have her on my list for podcasts. (laughs) Yep. We talk to and work with leadership in hospitals. Let's start there to say, okay, how do we create a real healthy workforce? Not lip service, not the words on your website or your brochure and not like giving the nurses pizza and tote bags, right? Like (laughs) how do you really make the nurses feel cared for and valued? And when you have a problem with bullying and incivility, how do you address it? Like Renee always says, ignoring it is the very worst thing you can possibly do, but most leaders ignore it because they don't know what to do. And that's why they need Renee. And the thing is that people would stay in the hospital if it was a friendly, happy, healthy, satisfying place to be. And they're leaving in droves because the hospital leaders don't know how to do it Mm -hmm. and they're not doing it well, obviously. Mm -hmm. So why are people going for alternative things and going for remote nursing and looking into Mm -hmm. public health and ambulatory care because the hospital sucks for most people. And why do so many new nurses leave the profession so quickly? I have a client right now who's an older man who became a nurse after a long career doing something else. And he was treated so poorly in the first few months of his career that he's not sure he's going to continue. And he's a brilliant man bringing like 50 years of experience to the table, but no one could see it because they didn't give him any space to, to show who he really was, who he is. So I personally think one, when nurses want to get into these new nurse residencies, it's this highly competitive thing and Mm -hmm. only like this many nurses get Mm -hmm. into the new nurse residencies. Mm -hmm. I think every single brand new nurse should be in a nurse residency and a really good Mm -hmm. one, no matter where they choose to work first, every single nurse should be in a Mm one-year residency. And whether they go into home health or acute care or dialysis or federally qualified health center, that should be a thing. Oh, that's a great um, idea. Because, and preceptors need to be trained to actually precept well. And when someone's getting chewed up by a preceptor, they should be given another one. And every single facility and agency needs a true mentoring program, not like some mentoring program where there's a bunch of boxes to check, you know, like a mm-hmm. real mentoring program. And otherwise, you're, you're not going to retain people. Well, and I think that even extends to nurses who've been either out of nursing for out of hospital nursing for a while, or never went, you know, never went to begin with if they wanted to, because I, 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 before I decided to do patient advocacy, I was like, I got to get out of the OR. I just want to go to ER somewhere else, labor and delivery. And they wouldn't take me because I didn't have experience. Yeah, it was like I've been a nurse for twenty years. How much I experience mean, doc- do you want? The doctors get two. They all get two years. You know, to mm-hmm. to get their specialty down. I mean, ours yeah. is just specialized in different ways, and mm-hmm. it's like you're just. It's like the baby being thrown into the pool. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> I also have a problem with with. This is another conversation, but I have a problem with the fact that medical students and then you know, as they are becoming doctors, they get to try out everything before they choose what their residency is going to be. Where nurse practitioners, APRNs have to choose their specialty before they really experience it. Right. Yeah. Or even nurses. Choose their track first. Right. I don't, I don't understand it. It's all well, sort if, of if you join if you if you do the military right out of nursing school, then you get to try whatever you want to try, which is nice. But that's just a plug for the fact that in the military they teach you how to do everything, even intubate patients. So it's you know mm-hmm. you get that broad experience. But yeah, that's but yeah. cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's super cool. And you're learning from, you know, the boots on the ground, corpsmen and, you know, people that just enlist so they don't have college degrees. They've been in the military for a long time. I mean, I had this old salty staff sergeant 
Oh my gosh, he was salty dog. And if I I had to eat so much humble pie with him, it was crazy. Wow. Like, but he taught me how to be a good OR nurse. That's I just great. ate a lot of humble pie. Yeah, that's <laughs> I great. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of things that need to change about yeah. how nurses are brought into the profession and kept. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't think it's there's a lot of things not being addressed. Mm-hmm. Like right now, as we're recording this, this week and the following week, I'm going to have two episodes featuring, it'll be th- two sets of three commissioners from the commission to the, the national commission to address racism in nursing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we don't address the things that are at the core of the culture of the bigger culture, and then the, the, the micro culture of healthcare, then nothing is going to change. And on that episode I just recorded that's coming out shortly, we were talking about those dangerous words in healthcare, but that's the way we've always done it. I've written a a couple articles about that. Those, the seven most dangerous words in healthcare, that's the way we've always done it. And the the way we've always done it is eating our young and making them suffer the way we had to suffer and, mm-hmm. you know, not allowing space for people to express themselves and do their career differently. If we don't allow for all that, then it's, that's, it's the way we've always done it and nothing and will ever change. If you right? do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And luckily we have some really, really cool people I, and I'm looking at millennials who are taking the reins of power. Like we have millennials in Congress now. And my friend, Charlene Platten is the director oh, of ambulatory. Her. You've met her. Yeah. Yeah. She's, okay. she's director of ambulatory nursing at Stanford and mm-hmm. she's a different kind of leader and we need people like that. So that's where I feel hopeful that things are going to change because some visionaries are coming up in the ranks right yeah. now. I think, I think that's our, our little corner is just letting nurses know that help is on the way because so Mm -hmm. many are just like, when in danger, run, when in doubt, run in circle, scream and shout. I mean, it's just like, Mm -hmm. is anybody doing anything about this? Yes. There's lots of people and giving Mm -hmm. those people a voice, I think is like, help is on the way, (laughs) you know, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Well, my Jewish cowboy friend Uh is, is been <laughs> i only know you're my only one i think really oh, yeah i see yeah. i think i gotta get you some cowboy boots though just to make my whole my whole image of you complete thank you <laughs> how there's many ways people can enjoy your your talents and your experience and your intuition uh, one is the nurse keith podcast how can they find yeah. you there the nurse keith show yeah um, the nurse keith show apple podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, any podcast app, the Nurse Keith Show. It's also at Healthcare Health Podcast Network, like you too, yes. healthpodcastnetwork.com. And then it's also on my website, just under the podcast drop-down menu at nursekeith.com. And then I'm on and, you know, and you Twitter, know what else? LinkedIn, all that stuff. You know what What's else that? is that pretty soon we're going to have Nurse Keith the Nurse Keith Show on the Renegade platform, and you can get CEs for his podcast. Oh, yeah. I've been drafting syllabi. <gasps> yes, you have. And you're mm-hmm. quite the machine. I've been so impressed with sil- I'm like, whoa, he's just, he's yeah. moving. He's so- a pi- Once again, you're a pioneer. You're, you're a pioneer. You're, you're our first. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've gotten three to you so far. There'll be more. Yeah, well, I think uh, right before that all goes live, we should have you on for another little ditty, like even like a 20 minute or so you Mm -hmm. could tell us about the podcast and who you talk to and what to expect. Maybe some of your recommendations. Yeah. 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 There's some other RN engaged who I need to introduce you to as well. Oh, please do. We love to find new people. Yeah. That'd be very exciting. A couple cool ones. Yeah. Cool. I'll take them. I'll reach out. All right. Yeah. It's so always such a pleasure to talk to you. So fun to meet you in person and yeah, just happy really you're nice our pioneer you on our platform. It's so cool. And your podcast is amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks Yours for all your too. advice and direction. The health podcast network has been very, very good. We have, and we have not used utilized because we've been so busy, like with 
everything. We have not, I can't wait to use them more. Yeah. 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 But Dan's yeah, Dan been Kendall amazing. Is amazing. Yeah. He's yeah, been health, very good. They've grown so much. Like I was, I think I was the second nurse podcast invited on to the network. And now That's there's, awesome. it, they're just growing so yeah much in so many directions. It's, it's really an amazing network. I just referred another, another one of our guests who just started a podcast mm-hmm. to him because of mm-hmm. your recommendation and now our experience with them. So that's cool. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Big, pl- big kudos to them. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Big kudos to you for being on our podcast and everything else. So yeah. rock on. And you didn't cry, Antra. She almost said that at the end. It's just oh, been okay. so calm. I felt and it. I know. And peaceful. I'm just like, this is the most relaxing podcast I've ever <laughs> no, done. I was oh. watching you at the end when Keith was talking about uh, nurse leaders and changing ne- leadership and nurse, re- like, you were, you were getting a little deep. I there. almost got her. I felt oh, it. Man. You know, I'm just like zen out right now. I'm like, <laughs> really? Literally, that was the most relaxing podcast I've ever been on. Because <laughs> I was using my FM radio voice. I know. <laughs> Yeah, you and Karen both. Speaking of which, I have to record our introduction because we didn't. Welcome to the RNAgate podcast. That's Um, right. But I'll have to do my little clicker. We'll kick you off, Keith, and then I'll record it and then snip that and put it on the front. All right, y'all. Thank you. Take care. We'll be in touch. Love you. Bye. Bye. Renegades.